I'm Scott Jones. I'm Bill Bohr. And I'm Jeff Holtzclaw. And we've got a joint podcast production today with New Persuasive Words here is partnering with Theology on Mission. Wow, you said that that was so dramatic. Theology <laughs> on Mission. You're taking us to a whole nother level here at Theology and Mission, Scott. That's, that's, all, that's how we always speak of you. That's Even a, when yeah. you're not around. We, there's actually often violins playing in the background when we say it. Yeah, it's well, pretty we, intense. Yeah. Yeah, we have several kind of sound effects when we just for your name, like it comes up and we just we have a little soundboard. Oh, dun, dun, dun. oh really? <laughs> yeah, uh, no. Because breaking we, news with Jeff Holzglaw, like you, kind of you are bits. one of our favorite uh, theolog- uh, evangelical theologians. You are. Oh well, thank you. Well, we do have to kind of name the unnamed here. Is Dave Fitch is not on our podcast today, which we all lament. Uh, he's on vacation somewhere, I think Florida. You know, he's a big time like professor, so he gets to do that. Is he out uh, condemning Christendom wherever he finds it? Oh yeah, he's yeah, he's, he's crusading. Probably, we could say even he's as crusading. we speak, he's probably storming St. Augustine, Florida. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. It's, it is possible. It's under siege. Yep. Now, for our listeners, you, uh, you, Jeff, are probably a little more of a fan of Augustine than your co-host Dave Fitch. That is probably true. Yes. Yeah. He's a yeah. Yoder Hauerwas guy, and I'm like a, I don't know, I'm a you know I'm a Bible guy. Oh, yeah. The Bible. I like no, it. I am. The though, Bible. But, yeah, but yeah, the good. Bible and Augustine. That's good. You've seen the Bible, a red guitar, three chords, and the truth, and you're good. There we go. I could, I could build a whole ministry on that right there. Half. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, played, I played grunge. You know, I yeah, grew up playing yeah. electric guitar, three chords. I actually can change key. So, at any rate, uh, well, I, I, one of the things that inspired us getting together with you, Jeff, is that a couple weeks ago, about 10 o'clock on a Friday night, I see Scott calling me on the phone and you know, he calls me at all hours anyway, but I thought and I don't, I don't greet. There's no salutations. When no, I, call. There, it's, I roll right into the conversation. He goes right into a mid thought. Anyway. So I thought the Friday night, 10 o'clock, maybe this is serious. He says, dude, which I always like to be, you know, referred to as dude. It's like the vocative tense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. From, it's, yeah, it's a term that to me should just be reserved for the big Lebowski, but anyway, great movie. And so anyway, he says, dude, I just wanted to let you know, the evangelicals have discovered the Trinity. <laughs> Breaking yeah. news. Do, 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 do. S- evangelicals have dug up the Trinity. Yeah. So I uh, just was so excited that he called me and interrupted my Friday night to tell me that. So we thought, oh, my goodness, uh, we have to get on this. <laughs> because- <laughs> <laughs> and Jeff, this is a controversy that has broken out in the evangelical world. On one hand, the egalitarians re- regarding gender roles and on the other side of the complementarians, which is so interesting. I thought compliments were a good thing. Like, Oh, you give compliments. So they take word like compliment. Like I thought it's just a very interesting thing 
But okay, so the complementarians think that you know men and women are have complementary roles, not they don't have an egalitarian relationship or in in it, is it, family it's a, and religious life. Yeah, it's a way of saying men get to be heads of the household and why women can't be in leadership in church, right? That's basically the um the implication of that idea, correct? Right, right. So uh yeah, so I've been blogging at Miss You Alliance about this for last on and off a couple of weeks. There's been this huge uh, blow up. Scott McKnight and others have been involved. And so that like there's really two things that I think you and Scott really, you know, and I would like to talk about is how does what is the doctrine of the Trinity uh, in itself, if I could say that. But then also what does it matter for human relations? If we're made in the image of God, what does that mean for us? And there's People on one hand uh, who, as you said, Scott, complementarians and others who would say, well, there's a hierarchy in gender that God has created and ordained and blessed and is good. And in fact, we can find this hierarchy in the eternal Godhead in the Trinity is that the Father is the authority um, who exercises the kind of initiation of all things. And the Son submits and obeys and follows um, the Father. And so there's an eternal subordination. And so uh, therefore we should not be so worried about a temporal subordination between men and women. This is kind of how the argument goes. So um, I've looked at, I looked at one of your articles. I've looked at some of the passages they use. They do realize that they're using the Aryan arguments, don't they? Oh, oh, we went straight there, huh? We went straight to the Aryan arguments. Dude, aren't, they, aren't, the Aryans the, aren't the Aryans the people that are voting for Donald Trump? No, they, the, Aryans, the Aryans, do, Aryans do not like Donald Oh, you mean like Aryans, like white, blue, White people with blue eyes, or yeah, I was or thinking, Mormons. yeah, yeah. Wow, well, oh, that's a good, yeah. They could be, you know, there was a Miss Hitler pageant in Scotland uh, this year. Okay, no, well, bring it back. I don't, Bill, I don't know that. That's so, uh, that, that is the only, so what, that is the only beauty pageant where you lose points for yeah. saying world peace. I just look forward <laughs> and keep my eye on the prize, Jeff. So let's keep going. So okay, so I, no, it just, Aryans, just struck me funny. What, what are the Aryans for all of uh, my listeners? Uh, and your listeners, maybe who wouldn't know what what is the Aryan problem? All right. Well, of course, this we're 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 sailing into the waters of Christendom. Is that okay that we do that? Well, yeah, that, we do this when Dave is gone, so we're we're good. We're good. Okay. Christendom concepts allowed. Well, actually, uh, the Aryans were a um, well, they eventually be uh, got called that and dumped into that category. They were people who um, let's see. Let me do this in shorthand. Okay, there was a controversy that broke out it started in the church in alexandria about one particular presbyter elder teaching that was encountered to his bishop okay and long and short of it he taught some version of the fact that christ the second person of the trinity uh there was a time when christ was not that he was deified he was uh in a very special unique relationship with the Father, he might even go as far to say that he is, uh, in some way or the other, the Word of the Father or the Logos of the Father, but he was not co-eternal with the Father. He was he was different, and um, he was a, he was a created being, and that's how the whole Trinitarian controversy broke out, and eventually that's what got us the Nicene Creed. So the 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 slogan is there was a time when the son was not is kind of the the short of it so that the father was eternal but the son is kind of eternal but he came into time and now he's eternal you know so it's kind of complicated it's a, it is a complicated thing but but part of what they argued and this is and it really was a biblical argument as opposed to um, you know people like you said that a bunch of old white men because Constantine made them came up with this idea it was a sixty year fifty year 
biblical uh, as well as a philosophical discussion that had really implications on what's the nature of the Christian life, what's the nature of our redemption. And it was just interesting to me the uh, the same subordination arguments that the Arians used and the Neo-Arians used are the same ones that the complementarians are using for the Trinity. Not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it struck me as interesting. Right. So you kind of you've kind of touched on a couple of things, which is is how, especially evangelicals like myself and others, how do we relate to the creeds? How do we interpret what is orthodox and what isn't orthodox? And part of the the Trinitarian issue that we've been discussing uh, online and other places recently um, have to do a lot with how do you read the Bible and what do the creeds help you understand the Bible or do they hinder and get in the way? And so on the one hand, the kind of the eternal subordinationists will say, uh, well, we're just trying to read the Bible. And then the people on the other hand will do what you did. Uh, so for all, all the list, theology mission uh, listeners, Bill is a pastor, but he's also a historian. So he's doing the historian thing. Uh, it's, and so how does history and scripture fit together is one of the main the main issues that's been kind of uh, uh, happening here. And that's why Scott kind of opened up with joking with the evangelicals have discovered the doctrine of the Trinity. It's like we've always had it, but we've never really understood it historically. And I think that's one of our big issues right now. And so when you say, oh, they sound Aryan, the people who, you, who are being told that are like, what are you talking about? We're not Aryan, we're Orthodox. And so it is like, they get a little, they've been flummoxed by the, by the way, accusations. And actually, I probably did that on person to get them. If they actually hear this, I hope they do get a little agitated. <laughs> did, didn't St. Nick, Nicholas um, punch uh, Arius or punch an Aryan at the Council of Nicaea? Uh, Arius wasn't there, but he he might have punched there, somebody. Yeah, there was an Aryan, rather. Yeah. So, evangelicals, <laughs> watch out. Santa Claus, if you're Aryan, Santa, Santa Claus, Claus is gonna, coming to town, baby. He's going to give you a beatdown. That's right. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, you know, it's interesting where you say that, like, Albert Ritchell is a great 19th century, one of the great 19th century German theologians. I, I said that, you know, we tend to do theology, like, let's look at the Bible. Then let's look at the history of interpretation of, of the text, and then let's make our constructive position. He said, "Well, really, we should start with history of interpretation because that's what most people are doing when they when they think they're reading the Bible anyway. They're just re- they're just kind of rehearsing their own tradition. So, like, look at the, tra- the the interpretive tradition first, then try to get to the plain sense of the text." Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of people have accused um, these who are advocating for the eternal subordination of the Son as kind of reverse engineering their doctrine of the Trinity based off of what they already want, which is a complementarian kind of basis for men being above women. And so, uh, so if theology is autobiography, people would say, well, they're, they're changing the doctrine of Trinity to fit their own social and gender politics, um, which on the one hand, you could say, well, that's kind of ungenerous, like let their doctrine stand. On the other hand, it's kind of like, well, but that does seem to be what they're doing. Uh, yeah, and so how do we kind of but, parse but if Jesus that out? Jesus was male, and he had totally supported. Wouldn't that make men in the subordinate role? Obviously. All right. So we'll throw it back to Bill. So how is this biblical or not biblical? Like, where do the Arian arguments come from? Like, they come from a reading of Scripture, right? Well, in actually, one sense, yeah, they have a yeah, basis yeah. in the text. No, and I think uh, it was—it's really interesting uh, if you look at the history of the uh, history of the biblical arguments in the in the Arian and then the Neo-Arian controversy, uh, they're both arguing from Scripture. As a matter of fact, what's interesting, the Gospel of John will give you both. The Gospel of John can give you uh, 
whatever you know if you're if you're talking about subordination or, or equality uh, you can get both from the gospel of john and and historically both sides use the gospel of john i i would also yes. just like to say one thing in response i mean i do think that the doctrine of, of the trinity uh really came out of i don't i, I don't want to say exactly similar things because i think how we're saved is a little bit more important than, uh, you know, who gets to be the head of the household, that that's important. That's maybe practically more important, but uh, in day-to-day living. But again, the Trinity, the arguments around the Trinity where people were saying, well, what's it mean for me to live a godly life? How do I get to heaven? And even more importantly, how does God save me? So in many ways, I think a lot of the Trinitarian arguments, whether you're talking about, you know, the Alexandrian folks, Athanasius, who whose view eventually won, or the Arians and those who followed him, uh, I think they were trying to deal with practical spiritual issues as well. So sometimes you can say that these doctrines are grown from the bottom up as well as from the top down. Yeah, if there, if, when people hear Trinitarian theology today, the, it, it evokes like this idea of well, speculative. And, and I think what you're saying is it, it, its origins are not speculative at all. I mean, they're experiential, they're practical, they're trying to ex- express how God meets us in the world for our reconciliation and redemption. Yeah, and are they speculative in the way that prayer can be speculative? I think that's, I mean, I'm not saying there weren't shadow sides to this whole discussion. I mean, Greg Renanzianz has quit the Council of, of Nicaea Constantinople. Winners never quit and quitters uh, never win. Yeah, because he just was got fed up with everybody. There's a great poem that he wrote about it uh, that you can still read today. It's a translation. But I guess it'd be interesting for me to hear from you because this is your more immediate community. Uh, these are uh, your training pastors to be in churches that don't agree on this issue. You have colleagues uh, in maybe not in your seminary, but in your larger circle of relations that disagree with you on that. So what do you think is at stake in this particular discussion? Well, I think there's three related things at stake. One is, is what does it mean to be biblical? Uh, what does it mean to read the Bible to, are we proof texting? How do you read the whole counsel of God, all of scripture together? So that's one issue is what does it mean to be biblical? The other issue is, is what does orthodoxy mean in the sense, is it, uh, is it my interpretation of scripture that makes me orthodox? Is it my, or is it my alignment with the historical creeds? This is what has been kind of been coming out is people want to say, Oh, I from the Nicene creed. And then people uh, respond with, yeah, but everything else you say denies your affirmation. And so what does it mean to affirm the Nicene Creed and then to invalidate it with all your other affirmations? So how do you relate to history? And then I think the third one, which is the most immediate, is, is well, what does it mean to be made in God's image, male and female? Uh, and how do you relate you know, in marriages and in church leadership and things like this? And so myself and a lot of like Missio Alliance and different groups that we're a part of, uh, Northern Seminary certainly will go toward the more egalitarian route, whatever that might mean for you. Whereas, you know, there's other people who are going the complementarian route. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is that this whole controversy started not because egalitarians were calling out complementarians on their view of God, but rather complementarians of a more Presbyterian Reformed persuasion started calling out complementarians of a more Baptist reforms persuasion and said, your doctrine of God stinks and it's probably heretical. So it is an interesting intramural battle there. It's but a those, Hatfield and the McCoys. Yeah. Illogical. <laughs> oh, so so yeah, it's really those heaven. three things is what does it mean to be biblical and read the Bible? How do we relate to tradition and the creeds? And then what does it mean to be male, female? 
Are, and, I mean, those are those are fairly big and perennial issues. They are. They are important issues. And how many angry Calvinists can you put on the head of a needle? I don't uh, know. As, well, I don't know. I think the needle's up there somewhere else. But anyway, so moving right along. So, well, let's talk about the Imago Dei, okay, the image of God. Um it tells us that we're created in the first creation story. Uh, we're told that we are created in the image of God, male and female. God created them. It doesn't really tell us what that means. Uh, you can infer from what happens afterwards or what happens next is it means that you all are in charge of the world. So go out and be little deities in the world and, and you're in charge. But just remember once a week that you're not God. Act like God's six days of the week, but then remind yourself that you're not on the Sabbath. So, isn't there even a problem with the fact that in the text we're not explicitly told what it means to be made in the image of God, other than it's um, binary uh, from a gender perspective in Genesis one? There's a, I think Burkauer says in somewhere that basically you could write a whole intellectual history of the West based on what we th- at the current time the culture thinks the image of God is. No, I think that's 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 absolutely like the case. if it's the intellect if it's a sort of time intellectual it's the, it's the mind if it's, it's artistic rela- it's creativity it's, it's yeah it's a relational yeah whatever that is. Well, can I take it slightly a different direction? So what so instead of asking what is the image of God and how does it relate to gender? Uh my question is is how does it relate to authority or not? So because a lot of these conversations is like so even a couple of proponents they kind of call their view the eternal relationships of authority and submission view. This is like their view is that there there's within the Godhead, there's an eternal relationship of authority and submission. The father has authority and the son submits. Uh, and so the question is for me is, well, what does it mean to have authority and what is the broad uh, biblical trajectory of authority? And I would say, well, the image of God is God giving humans his authority to do his will on earth. Right. And so in one sense, the, 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 the correlate of authority for me, as I see a lot of scripture, and I could go through this, and I would love to hear what you think. The correlate for authority in scripture op, op, often is not who then is submitting, but it's rather who am I giving my authority to? And the authority just no. kind of keeps getting passed down the chain until we're all, in a sense, authorized by God to be doing all sorts of things. But the, the, no. the reverse of, well, now who's submitting? I don't, I don't see that very often. What do you guys think? I think what happens when the authority gets passed down the train far enough and it goes to Donald Trump? No, that's for, for another for podcast. No, no, don't go there. No, he, he, he can't, <clears throat> we can't help it. It's, we can't. It's Bill a, and I, we have not, we've said after every podcast for the past, like, for however many months, we've said no more Trump references. We go back to it every single time. A, a gypsy so, woman put a curse you, on us. You kind of so like photobombed this podcast. Is it like a Trumpo bomb? Is that like, yeah, you, know, it's total you just Trump-o-bomb. like bring it up for no reason. Okay, so what about yeah. your passing authority? Down, you know, so so humans receive the authority of Christ. The, you know, the Father gives the Son all authority in His right. earthly. But then the the Son gives the Church all authority. Right, the authority yeah. goes. It's like pay the authority forward. It's not like uh, complemented by submission. No, I I agree with you. I mean, I think there's a sense where, and again, there's a dance in Scripture, and I think we have to not reduce the tension. Um, you know, I've studied uh, with some some leading Jewish thinkers, and uh, Danielle Hartman, who's in charge of the Shalom Hartman Institute in Israel, uh, talks about this idea you have the Genesis 1 God and you have the Genesis 2 God. Now, again, he doesn't believe there are two gods, but what you do is sometimes you need the God who 
gets down the dirt with you, tells you everything you need to do, uh, makes you animals, and that doesn't make you happy. So you find a helpmate, and you know uh, that's one kind of God—the God of a kind of an immediacy, the God who is there that's involved in every decision we make. And then you have the Genesis one God who also shows up again, like when Abraham getting when he's getting ready to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. God is having a conversation with God's self and saying, all right, well, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And he goes, well, we did make this agreement where we made this covenant. And then Abraham or God proceeds to get Abraham's advice. Okay. I mean, people, I think, get that tax so wrong where they make fun of or they get caught up in the bargaining. But God says yes to every time to Abraham's suggestion. In other words, Abraham says, yeah, and Abraham says to God, how can the judge of the just do something that's unjust? And God kind of says, all right. <laughs> and so I think you have, you, you can, you can make a biblical argument for both things, but I do think in terms of uh, what's an overarching biblical approach to power, to authority. And I think you've already kind of led us down that road. Like for our listeners that li- like looking for illustrations or analogies, you're saying, so it's like Genesis one, Genesis two, God, just like there's a Donald Trump with the teleprompter. <laughs> And one without it, and it's kind of different. Like he's all right. Just you know, Jeff and I know how smart you are. We really do. You are a very smart person. I just don't know what gets in there's you. There's two sides to Scott. There's reflective intellectual Scott and middle school Scott. And today, and the two will middle, never meet. Yeah, middle school Scott. <laughs> middle school Scott. Scott behind the mic. Scott Kent Jones is going to start uh, a new professional side career for Trump comedies. We'll find it. We'll post his website here soon. Possibly, possibly, possibly. Uh, okay. All right. Well, I think I threw it to you, Jeff. So talk to talk to me about expand more about how how the authority and power of God tends to be uh, uh, played out in holy history. Um. Well. Okay. I don't have. I don't have anything off the top of my head. You know, I go to uh, like Philippians two. Uh, you know, Jesus, who you know, in equality with God, did not consider or who in the form of God, uh, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and yet emptied himself. And so there's a sense that he takes his authority or what is his and uses it for the benefit of others. Um, now, a lot of the complementarians will say, oh, well, Jesus was sent to the earth uh, in obedience to the Father's will. So he was sent to earth in obedience to the Father's will, which is not, uh, and so therefore we can see that he really is in a sense submissive to the Father and so, because the Father sent him. And so uh, for me, and I think historically, that's not a, a super compelling argument, <clears throat> the sending thing, because you, you want to say like, well, I went up to get into the whole doctrine of God and inseparable operations and things like that. But the question is, is well, can, can some, for me, can someone be sent or do a work uh, merely because they're obedient? Right, so I feel like there's a failure of imagination when it comes to authority, making a decision, and willing. So if my son comes to me, which he, which you know, actually they both came to me today, and they're like, "Hey, can we go to Starbucks? Can we get a frappuccino?" Um, because they want a frappuccino, right? Now I want them to have a good thing, and I want them to have a good summer. So I say yes, and here's some money, right? So they're going forward with my permission, my authority, and my money, but they're not doing something just because I told them to. They're doing something because they want to. 
And so they're being sent by me with my permission, but they're also being sent by themselves. Like they want to go. And I feel like, you know, that's a, that's a pretty commonplace understanding of like them acting under my authority, but under their own will and volition. And they're, they're submitting to like, and, it's, and that's, and that's real freedom. That's right? real I mean, that's freedom. The, exactly. When, when the is and ought aren't in tension with each other. So right. We feel right. Free. And well, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and, um, for freedom, you've been set free in Christ. And so a lot of these things were, it's like you could find a, bo- a couple of passages in scripture, you know, like I do nothing uh, on my own, but I only do what my father, what uh, I see my father doing, or I do not do my own will, but only my, you know, so there, you can find a lot of passages where Jesus seems to be submitting to the will of the father, but there's all sorts of other passages that, well, no, he's acting freely. So how do we, this goes back to being biblical. So, well, how do we read all these texts together well, instead of just grabbing a couple of them and being like, see, you know, uh, the son really is subordinate. And, you know, now we're going to import this kind of Western understanding of volition and will and freedom, uh, because that's what we think it means to be a person. And for me, it's just like, well, no, you're not being biblical. Like the Bible says the father and son are equal, that they do all things together, that they're, you know, that they don't share glory or have different kinds of glory. They all have glory. You know, there's all these different kinds of passages. And so I, it just can, when they say, well, we're just trying to be biblical and you, you people are being creedal. It's like, really? We're all just trying to be biblical. Like the creeds came from trying to read the Bible. Well, right. I, do you, you know, doesn't it strike you that a little, this whole thing's a little bit silly in that they're trying the to. The doctrine of the, the Trinity is not silly. Take it back, Bill. Take it back. Yeah, I mean, all right, people. You got rebuked. <laughs> I just did get rebuked. I feel like, I do, I, I do feel like, though, sometimes when some of these people are, are using the Trinity, uh, you know, the, the grammar, the, the mystery, the great mystery of the faith, uh, to, to reinforce a particular. Uh, familial uh relationship that it's it's like giving children automatic weapons i mean in other words i I think isn't aren't they pressing the grammar and even the doctrine of trinity in speculative ways that's beyond even our ability to comprehend even the people you know you read the great people who thought about this and even helped champion the doctor trinity after they get done talking about the nature of the relationships between the different persons of the trinity they would say but it's a, you know, our, our language is inadequate. I don't hear enough of that going on in this. Our language, their language seems to be more inadequate for themselves. Well, it's funny you say that because I had, I had this open to quote this and you set it up very well. This is from Paul Zoll's Grace in Practice. And it's the end of the, in the first half of the book is kind of his understanding of the Christian story, which ends with the Trinity, the short section. And then, you know, he follows up with like grace in parenting, grace in politics. He says that, the best we can do, and for Christians, it is enough, is to look at the Father's only Son who has made him known, John one eighteen. All other concepts of God are beside the point. They are interesting, but they are speculation. Speculation concerning God produced the doctrine of the Trinity. I myself believe this doctrine. It artfully and subtly allows for the unseenness of God, the Father, to relate to his seenness at a point in time in history, in Jesus Christ. And for both the unseenness and the seenness to relate equally to his presence in the now, the Holy Spirit. The conceptual brilliance and wholeness of the doctrine of the Trinity gives it intellectual and hence a theological appropriateness in giving verbal expression to the bigger picture of God's relation to the world. So I accept the doctrine and believe it. He says, what is less impressive about the doctrine of the Trinity is the various interpretations offered by theologians to its supposed portrait of the inner life of God. It is proposed, for example, in some contemporary Western theology and some branches of Eastern Orthodoxy that the Trinity mirrors an inner family life within the deity. 
The manyness within the oneness of the triune God is suppressed to exemplify or idealize human relationships within human families. Perichoresis is the Greek word that theologians uh, import to describe the sort of weaving back in upon itself of the divine trinity. An, in, an interpenetrating sort of cosmic loving that approximates some sort of human loving. I find this family life idea of the Trinity to be anthropomorphic in just the way Muslim sphere Christian theology really is. Boom. Wow. Well, I think I, I don't, I don't find it. I find it like, for instance, in, um, um, in Maximus confessor, I don't, I don't find it that way, but I understand, I understand what he's trying to say. And I don't think it comes across that way. Uh, I think the parakeesis is a wonderful, beautiful idea, but I think his point is well taken. Jeff, well, I think, yeah, that was I such do. a succinct reaction, Bill. That was a power reaction. I do think yeah. uh, two sentences. I'll I agree it. with Zal there. I think that uh, any kind of human uh, or desire to map the Trinity onto human relationships is uh, is fraught with peril. And I think, and I think this on both sides. I want to go on record that I think egalitarians and complementarians who appeal to the inner life of the Trinity are making a, a grave tactical error and probably producing a lot of bad theology. And so the egalitarians will say, well, you know, the, the Trinity father, son and spirit are totally equal and they, there's no differences between them. And therefore humans, you know, should be equal like that. And then the complementarians are saying, well, no, the Godhead has this inner hierarchy blah, blah, blah. I just think one, I'm an embodied person Two, who is extended through time. Uh, three, who has to communicate his own thoughts mediated through this thing called language all of which don't pertain to God in God's eternal being, however that might be experienced for God. And so for a human being uh, in a body extended through time, a gendered body at that, <laughs> right? So I'm a gendered body. We'll, we'll just keep right. classifying. I'm a white, a very I'm a masculine white one, if I middle say. class, wearing a polka dot shirt, uh, uh, man uh, who lives in time in, the, the, in between two centuries. You know, I, we all have the gift of living between two centuries, right? And so for me, uh, if we want to know what the divine life is for humans, where should we look? And you guys know my answer. Ooh, ooh, oh, yeah, ooh, you in the front. Me, me. Who? Yes. Jesus. It is. <laughs> right. And so we should be looking to Jesus for what it means to live in an embodied life extended through time within a certain cultural history. Hey, by the way, guys, Jesus was a man. Brought, Scott, you already brought that. Who was Jewish. Who was from the north, right? You know, like we, we always forget the kind of embodied life and the humanity of Jesus and things like that. So for me, all these things are false starters. I think the doctrine of Trinity is important. I just don't think it's, it's the place to turn to know how to live and follow God. Uh, I think we need to turn to Jesus. He lived a, a life before the Father, you know, empowered by the Spirit. And so there's, there's plenty we could learn there. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it's an essential doctrine, uh, which leads us to your, uh, one of your, um, what you thought three issues, and that is of evangelicals calling each other heresy or orthodoxy. Uh, uh, how do they do that, and what's the foundation of that happening? Uh, one story just reminds me of this whole uh, Trinitarian stuff um, was when I was uh, taking over a pastoral job, I was theologically examined uh, on the floor of the presbytery, and of course, you know, those examinations tend to be, you know, whatever people are fighting about at that particular time, but it went, it went fine. It went, uh, it went well. And I just, uh, you know, there were some interim staff at this church and I had lunch with, uh, one of the, uh, one of the, uh, uh potential associates, the person who had been hired in the interim and, uh, she wanted to stay on. 
And she was a graduate of a conservative evangelical seminary that remained nameless. And um, Name names. <laughs> anyway, so we sat down to have lunch. And uh, now, again, you also have to remember, she's trying to want to stay working with me. Okay, so that should be, uh, that should be uh, that's part of the comedy of the whole thing. And I said, well, you know, we're just talking. I said, tell me a little bit about yourself. And she goes, I just want you to know I have a real, real problem with your theology. That's a strange, just like approach strategy for advancement. That is. Like, 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 like. Let's pick critique the thinking of your potential benefactor. Yeah, seminarians and associate pastor out there. If you're, uh, if you're <laughs> wanting to get a job, that's maybe not what you lead with. But anyway, so, so what was wrong? persuasive words and theology? <laughs> well, anyway, I, I don't. Remember, Pro and tips. I, and, and what was funny? So she goes, and she starts saying, "What you? The way you talked about the Trinity." Uh, I never heard anything like that before. And I said, uh, she said, where did you get that idea? I go from the Cappadocian fathers, the people who helped define the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Who? Right. Well, and this is, and this is why we let off with the uh, newsflash evangelicals have discovered the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of not because like on one hand, like maybe church documents, um, church, you know, uh, bylaws, you know, would maybe have some Trinitarian formulations after you have an extensive kind of uh, definition of what scripture is and things like that. Uh, and so, you know, it's certainly been in and around like as part of orthodoxy, but as far as like the lay person and the pastoral interest in the Trinity is I think it's only, it's really kind of come back uh, this gender debate. And, and if you don't have any kind of long historical understanding of the different arguments for why and how you understand scripture and why this part of scripture doesn't mean that because then it would be, you know, if you're not a part of that conversation and you're just hearing uh, a couple of theologians and then at a pastor's conference, and then your pastor comes back from that pastor's conference, having heard it from a theologian, a complementarian theologian, and then he preaches about these things or, you know, has a Bible study about them. Then you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's eternal subordination between the father and son. That makes sense. And now I have three texts to refer that to. And now I'm good because I'm being biblical. And it's like, Whoa, Whoa, no, this is, this is, you know, and I'd go back to where, what you let off with bill, like, it is. It, it probably is tending toward heresy. There's. It's on the tracks of heresy. I, I have this example. You heard it here first. <laughs> we broke. We oh broke yeah. The no, story. definitely not. <laughs> this no, is where this not. is going. But it, it goes like this. So, as an example for all, for everyone who's listening, for you guys, you know, if you tell me, my uh, my favorite team is the San Francisco Giants. I love baseball. I mean, yeah, I love baseball. I love the San Francisco Giants. You tell me that. I'm from San Francisco, so I appreciate that. You know, I'm from the Bay Area. But then you proceed to tell me uh, how you love Eli Manning and the quarterback position is not overrated uh, and the rule changes are good. And you just tell me all about the, you know, the AFC East and how it's such a tough division with New England in there, or, or actually, no, the NFC, right? And you're talking about football, right? And you're talking, and then I say, hey, I think you're talking about. Th- the New York Giants. You're talking about football. You're talking about the New York Giants, not the San Francisco Giants. And you're like, no, 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 no. I love the San Francisco Giants. Really, it's the Giants that we're talking, the San Francisco Giants. And then you start talking about football again. It's like, this is what I think happens with orthodoxy. Like people are saying, oh, no, 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 I'm orthodox. And then they start talking. You're like, no, but every way you read scripture is what, Bill, you said, it's what the Arians did. Oh, no, 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 I'm orthodox. Right, point no, but you're interpreting that- all these texts the way the Arians did. So- Ah, uh, can I can I point out that you just 
reinvent you reframed and represented the argument the argument of J. Gresham Machen and Christianity and liberalism. Oh, did I? That's, 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 that's actually the exact same argument. The I mean, New that's York the Times. way he frames. He doesn't use the giants. He doesn't use the giants, but he uses the yeah, that same kind of argument, language that you know. Yeah, if I, if the, I, the I, language of meaning. Man, I guess yeah, and I. So I you agree just call all these I mean, evangelicals liberals? Is that what you're doing? Uh, well, that's something exactly, Fitch would exactly. do. Heretics, liberals. Well, Fitch well, that's, now what, that's what. That's what Joe, John Henry Newman said. The children, uh, the children of Catholics who leave the faith become apostate, and the children of Protestants become liberals. Come on, isn't this a Christendom problem? There we go. <laughs> Look, I'm a neo Anabaptist. There we go. Scott's impersonating well, Fitch, I, one of his heroes. Yeah. Yes. Come on, Holsclaw. What are you doing over there? <laughs> You know, he would say right about now, well, we need to wrap this up. It's getting long. <laughs> well, we, we, we after he was done talking. Well, we'll add it. And of course, you know, let's face it. People who are going to be interested in this are kind of, this is a, this is not, uh, if you're interested in our pop culture stuff, you're not going to be interested in this. There, there's about as many as members of the Trinity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I do, I, you know, I, I grew up in, in kind of Bible Christianity. I was, you know, rural Methodist in West Virginia, uh, non-confessional church uh, churches that were revivalistic. Yeah, I moved to Pennsylvania and, and went to uh, United Brethren Church, which was kind of the German uh, Great Awakening churches and revivalist churches, like kind of parallel with the Methodist movement. And um, the first time I think I probably ever said to Creed was going to church with my Lutheran girlfriend in high school. And when I said to Creed, I said, yeah, this is this is what I believe. So you have the Lutheran, the Lutheran girls. If you're going to sin, sin boldly. <laughs> <laughs> That's for a different podcast. But having said that, uh, so I think there's a sense where growing up in a non-creed or non-confessional church, nonetheless, uh, the Trinity was in the it was in the water, it was in the air, it was in the teaching, the preaching. When we occasionally would sing the doxology, it was there. So I do think that there's something that's happened. Sorry, I want to edit that out. Uh oh. <laughs> that's that's fish. That's <laughs> but um no, there the, so there I think this I think that evangelicals are getting biblically and theologically more illiterate. And I've seen that happen. Uh I'm in my mid fifties and I taught at an evangelical seminary for ten years, and the kind of biblical teaching I got growing up in evangelical and fundamentalist churches, uh compared to, uh, you know, fast forward 20 plus years, uh, people don't know the Bible. I mean, I expect the Presbyterians and mainline people not to know the Bible, but now evangelicals don't know the Bible either. And so I think that creates a huge problem I think, as well. I think there's something to that, if I could add that. Now, this, as a plug, this would never happen at Northern Seminary, or certainly not in our theology and mission program. A little plug there, right? This would uh, never happen, but I, I think you have a point there, Bill, is that there's, there's a dec- I would just add, there's a decrease in biblical literacy but an increase in wanting, could I say, to theologize. Like there's kind of the sense that the yes. evangel- and I think this is partly why the neo-reformed movement has caught on so substantially is there's this, there's, you know, the scandal, the evangelical mind that Mark Knoll talks about that people are like, oh yeah, we need to yeah. theologize. Yeah. Yeah. And there's been this inverse relationship between taking the Bible really seriously in, in the sense of reading and applying and like relating the Bible. So I know we we hold the Bible in all seriousness, but I don't know if we actually take it in all seriousness, right? So there's this there's this kind of downtrend in biblical knowledge and understanding in a comprehensive kind of sense, but there's this uptick in wanting to do theology. And I think 
the, we're seeing some disastrous results. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Can I just say too, because this is, you know, are you going to talk good about my program after I talk good about my program? Yes. Okay. That's, that's, I'm going to do that. Yeah. Well, I was going (laughs) to talk about your podcast, which is called Theology on Mission. So it's kind of, you want to talk theology, but you want to talk about it. I mean, your goal is in the context of the life of the the mission of the church. So in the pre Christendom period, in the pre Christendom (laughs) period. Now, I think that one of the reasons that kind of the nascent, framework for the Trinity that was emerging was important is because it was as Christians were in a minority in a pluralistic empire, the name and character of God was really important, like to be able to, right. to, to talk about it. And I think increasingly in, in lots of the Western world where it's becoming increasingly secular in the post Christendom world, that this is important. Like that the, the learning, knowing the grammar of faith and the story the particularity of the story of the God of Israel revealed in and as Jesus Christ. I mean, the Trinitarian you know, language is really important. That's why in the church, we do things like baptize in the name of the creator, redeemer, sustainer. I mean, these are, I mean, the names, the father, son, and spirit are names are not job descriptions. Yes. Right? Yeah, like or functions so as sometimes that, they're th- called. Yeah. Right. So I think that, that this is an important thing for people that care about mission and care about, telling the story of, of Jesus because yeah. you can't tell the story of Jesus and have it be the story of God without like some, you know, right. Well, and I would just add with a, a Harawas kind of quote, a rough quote, which is orthodoxy is valuable only because it helps us tell the story of Jesus rightly. And so orthodoxy is not yeah. something yeah. else that's added to the story of Jesus or added, to, but it helps us keep the story straight. It gives us some guardrails. And I think that's really important. And we stop being able to tell the story of Jesus properly uh, when we stop speaking about the Trinity properly. And we haven't even gotten into this, but I also think it ends up, we, we deteriorate and we, we ruin kind of an understanding of who Christ is uh, and then what the role of the spirit is, uh, which are, are all detrimental, not just to theology, but to life and the mission and spirituality and prayer Maybe we should do a series of podcasts, Why the Trinity Matters for, and then we could just do all these other areas of life. Oh, yeah. that'd be good. I like that. Let's write that down. Bang them out Let's this write summer. it down. That sounds good. That sounds good. But, all right. So I think we've, you know, we've kind of touched on some of the breadth of, of, the, of the issue. I, I think it's also important, and I, I think this might be an overstatement, but it's a helpful one. Uh, it's been argued that, uh, I think Augustine being an exception, that most of the West did not really understand the Trinitarian formula of Nicaea in and of itself. It was a language, part of it was a language and philosophical problem. And so I, I do think there has been a tendency in the Western church to, uh, you know, I think that the latest version of it that Scott even referred to in attempt to get away from masculine language for God to become a modalist, you know, and, and, and somehow that, that God, the creator is different from the redeemer, from the sustainer. And, and that, is in in the name of kind of being inclusive language, it's just a variation of a consistent Western mistake about the Trinity. So I I do think that getting back to the idea of uh, on one level, yes, Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom, and I say this again and again: when Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to the church, it's like giving a Ferrari to a sixteen-year-old. And the early disciples wrecked that car, and we've wrecked it every generation since then. So there is a sense, yes, that it's a messy thing interpreting the tradition. And this is one other example of, of I think the kids wrecking the car uh, well-intentioned nonetheless. But I, I do think, 
again. See, what we need is, you know, in, in 90210, when they would party, it was Jason Priest's character who was always the one to walk around. Give me your keys. Give me your keys. <laughs> Give me your keys. You know, so you need somebody. We need to be, so, Bill, maybe you could be that guy. You know, in the church world, when that's that, when you be, I, give me your keys. Give me your keys. Your I'll key. be the designated theologian. But at any rate, I do think a good theologian is a humble theologian. I think the first person I ever heard say that was mm. Dr. Daryl mm-hmm. Guter uh, mm. 30 years ago. So nonetheless, I think that's, this to me is not humble theology. Uh, it, in some levels, it's as speculative as anything you can read in some of the wild treatises of the fourth and fifth century mm. about this. Yeah. I, I want to say one word for about a book that is it's kind of in tension with what I've been saying, but one of the best books on the Trinity for our listeners that I've read recently, is Peter Lightheart's work on the Trinity, which in some ways is an homage to Augustine de Trinitate, kind of modern, uh, you know, a little simpler, but, but very scholarly, reflective, engaging work. And it's, it's a kind of apologetic work where he's saying that, you can see the, the sort of perichoresis, the, the, the one, the three, and the many in all sorts of life, like uh, human, social relationships, sexuality, music, uh, rhetoric. It's a really good argument, and, and it's, it's, a practic- it's kind of a concrete argument for how the nature of the creation is in some way points to the nature of the creator. So, and it, again, it's, I, it, I think it's kind of the helpful reflection on the, tri- on the trinitarian life not the kind of anthropocentric uh, overly ideological kind of reflection so the trinity peter light nice yeah, we're good. and always yeah well thank you for having this conversation with us i uh we've we've it feels like we just skimmed the territory but you're uh you are living proof of why we cannot and should not uh dumb down seminary education and you show us that you can both be a good scholar and care about praxis as well so resist all those temptations that may come your way to dumb down your seminary because i can give you many examples of the fruits of what happens with that from other places and i've shown you can read a lot of books and still act like a middle school (laughs) there you go so cheers to not dumbing down seminary education i like it very good and we really need to just for all the listeners and lay people pastors like i just want to encourage everyone that good theology is important and that theologian pastors is, you know, we don't just need practitioners. We don't just need uh, managers, but we need people who study scripture and understand theology, understand these things. I think it's important. So all of you listening, keep up the good work. A long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And I knew if I had my chance That I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver With every paper I'd deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside the day The music died So bye-bye, Mr.
Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry And them good old boys Were drinking whiskey and rye Singing this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I die Did you write the book of love And do you have
Singing, this will be the day that I die. 